Blog Talk Radio. Firefly Willows L.I.V.E. presents The Amethyst Oracle, Divination with a Queer Twist, featuring your hosts, Heisey Luckmers and Charlie Harrington. Delves into life, death, and everything betwixt, between, and beyond. Between, and beyond. Between, and beyond. With a clear twist. The Amethyst Oracle. Divination with a queer twist. And now, here are your hosts. Charlie Harrington and Heisey Wittenberg. And welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us this evening. My name is Heisey, and I am joined by my esteemed colleague and co-host, Charlie Harrington. And I thought I was this... your steamy co-host. Well, I'm... that you you become that as the show progresses. Oh, that's true. It is kind of hot in here. No, go on. Do go on. <laughs> uh, and you've, you've joined us for the Amethyst Oracle, in case you were a bit confused. <laughs> uh, and you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash the Amethyst Oracle. And we, of course, will be offering you live readings, a chance for you to call in and get a reading live on the air with Charlie and I a little later in the show. If you would like to get into the queue for that, then you can either Skype in from the show page, I believe. I know they're kind of changing that on Blog Talk, but um, you can uh, either connect in from the show page, or you can call 646-716-5510. So, Charlie, I think for a moment as we start, we must, of course, mention what we are looking forward to this coming weekend. Yes, absolutely, Freddie Prince Jr. I don't know who that is. No, Freddie, the actor, Freddie Prince Jr., she's all that. Current star, anyway... All right, <laughs> it's a tired bit. Um, I mean, I, I'm looking bay. forward. I, I will. I will admit, I'm looking forward to seeing Taylor Swift this Friday. There we go. <laughs> um, the Bay Area Tarot Symposium. Yes, otherwise known as Bats. Bats. SF Bats, which is really taking place in San Jose, but that's a story for another day, isn't it? So what is it? What is it that you look forward to every year with bats? Drinking um, with tarot readers. I think that's a lot of fun. I think okay, the, the classes are good. The classes are fun. You get a lot of content, but I think it's the carousing and the perfectly sober uh, social interaction that you get to have with your fellow readers from all over the country slash world. So I always look forward to. Seeing, uh, seeing people. There, there's a great lineup of, of speakers. Mary Greer, Diane Wilkes, Thalassa, and our friend Benabel Wen joining us this evening. It is true. And I think it's also nice that it's 
large, but it's not uncomfortably huge. So you still feel that sense of intimacy in the classes and feel you get to actually know people and interact with people and see the same people over and over again so you can say hello and and that kind of thing rather than it being this huge conference where it just is sometimes a little overwhelming how many people there are and how crowded the the classrooms or the workshops or uh, things are. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, usually about between like 150 and 200 people and, you know, people split up between three classes per session. So there's usually... And, uh, you know, and then there's also great shopping to be done there at BATS. So once you're uh, on a break or if there, you don't have anything you want to go to that session, there are all kinds of goods. There's uh, decks and bags and teas and all kinds of things uh, to be procured. And my friends at the uh, the Mystic Dream are they have created some amazing spread cloths that Tarot and Linamond users were going to really enjoy. So I'm looking forward to that, the shopping. One that is presenting that you're particularly looking forward to? Well, Benabel, of course. I'm really excited to see what she talks about. And then um, uh, on the other show I do, we were talking to Mary Greer, and she talked about um, she's doing a panel on Jung and um, what, uh, what, what a tarot reader can learn uh, from uh, about Jung. And I'm very excited about uh, sort of his map of the psyche. So I'm interested to see that because uh, I know what an anima and an animus are and some shadow work, but that's about it. I, I'm quite uh, deficient in my Jungian <laughs> knowledge for a tarot reader. So. Um, and, of course, Rodney Carter, who's been a guest of the show, will be on, and I'm very excited to see him. And Karen Krebser, who's been a guest of the show. So uh, what about you? What are, what are you most anticipating? Um, let's see. Well, you know, I mean, I will say I always enjoy what Ellen Lorenzi Prince brings. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's kind of it's it's odd because it's like I don't we don't know exactly what the presentations are, but we have the list of who is going to be there mm-hmm. presenting. Um, so, you know, I, I I do always enjoy what she has to bring because she there, there's always a little bit of I don't know esotericism and um, there's always a little bit of magic in what she brings whether explicitly or implicitly <laughs> yeah, last year yeah it was um, we went on a meditation with Lilith in the uh, yeah. in the class based on her dark goddess tarot deck and I thought that was not something you would expect to do at a tarot symposium perhaps but it was a lot of fun yes I don't know what you um, expect to do at a tarot symposium. So, <laughs> and then, and then, of course, perhaps you can speak a little bit about the Saturday evening festivities that are always fun to look forward to as well. Yeah. Now, so this, uh, the, there's the 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 bats and the belfry uh, fun and frolic kind of cocktail hour that happens, um, and it's different every year. This year's theme is Blythe Spirit, which. Um, it's a play <laughs> with uh, the re- most recent uh, run of it starred the Ms. Angela Lansbury. Um, I missed it. I'm very sad about that. But uh, as a, a medium. And uh, so I think that there's some sort of some uh, turn of the century couture going to happen. Uh, hopefully. <laughs> and people will uh, 
be uh, enjo- uh, enjoying that. And there's usually at least one stand-up cardboard uh, uh, depiction of Tom Hiddleston. I think. <laughs> I usually patron saint of that. Yes. Yes. Patron saint, and, and I think, and of the daughters of divination, I think as well. A, a lovely, uh, you know, thing. This year, though, I'm having a good sense, and if you're listening to this, too, don't buy drinks there. I'm bringing a flask. To hell with this. Like, it's just too expensive to drink at the actual event. So I, <laughs> I pay for the going to the event. But uh, I'm I'm going to be a little bit cavalier about uh, the imbibing. So. <laughs> and then there are, of course, the, the after parties in people's hotel rooms. Mm-hmm. Well, where 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 where, thi- where things have happened? What was that? Uh, let's not tell all of our secrets, I see. Well, I, I I will just say things have happened, such as playing tarot poker using peanut butter filled pretzels to bet with. <laughs> yes, with led by Rachel Pollock. So if, you know, if you want to think, if you've ever have a, a luminary in the tarot world that you sort of worship from afar and you're completely in awe of them, do see them in real life at best. It's a very, it'll bring you down to earth and it's very rewarding. So she's a great poker player, that <laughs> that Rachel Bullock. Which I'm hoping that we will send our best wishes out to, that she is uh, continuing to improve in her health. She's had some health issues of late and won't be at bats this year as a result, but does seem to at least be making some improvement based on the last things that I saw posted about yeah. that. Um, she's uh, still battling. or she's, she's uh, had a really, really good result from her chemo, and, but she's got a few more sessions to go with the chemo, and then she uh, will be done. So she's still taking donations via GoFundMe. If you just search um, GoFundMe, uh, Rachel Pollock, you will be able to find the campaign and kick down some moolah if you've ever really enjoyed a Rachel Pollock book uh, or teaching or class or anything like that. Uh, you know, help help a sister out and uh, contribute to her campaign so that she can uh, live off these donations while she's uh, recovering as she's not able to do any writing or divining or teaching until uh, she has fully recovered from this. So it's really cool to, to watch the uh, tarot community uh come together um, a lot lately. There's been a lot of uh, tarot-based uh, um, fundraising going on. There's that, a deck for breast cancer, tarot pink. There's the, the tarot for hope in the works to help the blind. So lots of good stuff going on yeah. over there um, in, the, in the world of tarot. So looking forward to bats. Um if you can get to San Jose, <laughs> head to San Jose. There's, it's yes, it's two days of classes, but there's also, uh, you know, lots of fun with the tarot readers. You'll you'll give and receive lots of readings. Everyone's inspired to try new new things. You'll see decks you've never seen before. Uh, and I know that um, Friday for lunch there's a uh, a uh, a. a a, a planned expedition to uh, a very famous kind of really, really, I think I can say this, I used to live there, a tacky diner <laughs> in uh, in San Jose called Flames where everyone's going to have uh, uh, princess cake and uh, talk about tarot. So 
I'm looking forward to it. Excellent, excellent. Anything else going on for you that you would like to share? Uh, well, share and share, like I say. Uh, <laughs> like life is good. I'm I'm really uh, speaking of, of Benabel. Um, I'm really enjoying her book, Holistic Tarot, and hopefully we'll get to talk to her a little bit about that this evening, and as well as her new book. But if anyway, it's I think I don't have the data on this. I think it's the largest book on tarot ever read. You know, pound for pound, <laughs> the uh, read. I said read, created, written. Uh, and uh, I'm, uh, it's, it's, it's a weighty tome, but it is very thorough. So, it, it, um, uh, yes. So, <laughs> sorry. I'm uh, uh, looking forward to talking to her about that book and um, asking some tough questions about the opening of the key, which I'd never done before. But um, Well, it, it, it's not for the faint of heart. Mm-hmm. It's it's not for a beginner to jump into, let us say. It's uh, you know, I like I, is there a half opening of the key or the, the sneak peeks of the key? <laughs> if I could do, you know, it's not one of those sort of like lay out as many cards as feels right to you, and then see what images you're drawn to, and uh, think about what they mean, and maybe that's true, but maybe not. Trust your feeling, <laughs> you know that kind of. It's, this is a very much uh, a um. A, a it's a more precise practice, but uh, Benabel is so good at it. She was able to do it at the um, uh, in the sort of a, the uh, lobby of a Barnes and Noble <laughs> where she was doing wow. signing. You know, I, you know, I sat down and they thought, oh, I'm getting a reading from Benabel. Like maybe it'll be a three card or something. I'm like, nope, she's doing the opening of the key. Well, color me impressed. So, <laughs> well, then hopefully when when she comes on here momentarily, she will be able to. Unlock for us and everyone listening the secrets to doing it successfully mm-hmm. and as deeply as possible. There we are. Yeah. I, I look forward so. to being transformed by this evening's conversation. Excellent. Well, no pressure on her. <laughs> uh, so, since we've teased and teased and teased about her, perhaps we should uh, go ahead and move towards bringing her on so that we can start to let her dazzle us with her wisdom and wit rather than just built up into mythology, everyone wondering if she even really exists, shall we? Let's find out. All right. Oh, and I have a, a little friend, some elves. Uh, to do and you have some little... Uh, you have, what? You oh, have yeah. Little I, 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 didn't, I, I didn't really have time to do it myself, so I had my little friend, the elves, uh, do the intro. So. Ah, excellent. That I, I you know, we'll be working all of these... It's it's so convenient when we work in all these little magical realms. We can call upon these little helpers here and there to do things. So it's it's very kind of them. Hopefully you've made proper offerings in gratitude yes, for their I use my uh, Ace of Pentacles to summon them into being. And then I promptly banish them because who needs that kind of a <laughs> rat in the house? So here they are. Our friends here, here they are. Annabelle Wen is a California and New York lawyer who also happens to be a practitioner of various metaphysical arts. She is the author of Holistic Tarot, published by North Atlantic Books, 
and is now working on her second book, tentatively titled, The Tao of Crafts, a primer on food talismans and casting sigils in the Eastern esoteric tradition. Please join us in welcoming to the Amethyst Oracle, Benabelle Wen. And welcome, 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 Benabelle. Thank you for joining us here this evening. Hello, Heisey and Charlie. I was laughing the whole time. You guys are so funny. I don't even want to talk. I just want to listen. <laughs> well, well uh, keep going. No, <laughs> I, I, I blame the laughter on the elves. That's true. It's, uh, they're That's a joyful a cool people. Intro too. Oh, well, thank you. So uh, we've we've banished them though, so it's, we can get serious here. Because uh, oh, it's a lot of meaty topics. So, Ms. Benabel, can you, for, for those who are unascended and have not yet heard the legend, the myth uh, of your of your coming into being as a tarot uh, luminary, what <laughs> was your journey to the tarot? My journey to the tarot. Well, I've been on the tarot journey for a very long time. I started in cardamancy, so. Um, tarot, I came to that a little bit later, late junior high, early high school, and something about it, just I was really gravitated toward it. I was always into the esoteric and the occult, and tarot was just a natural thing to become obsessed with. So I started then, but it was more dabbling. It wasn't anything too serious. I didn't really take a scholarly or, or an academic approach to it. I didn't even know you could. And then I started reading Mary Greer and a lot of the um, older authors and started realizing that, wow, there's so much more to it. And that's when I really got into it. That would be around college and then into law school. Instead of, you know, studying constitutional law, I was learning the opening of the key. (laughs) So as you were talking about earlier, and that would be my journey. And I decided to write a book on everything I've been uh, discovering. And quite, and what a tome it is. (laughs) <laughs> it is. Um, I mean, it has a lot of qualities besides how humongous it is, and I, I shouldn't uh, <laughs> dwell on that. But um, it is a tremendous, tremendously thorough uh, volume. There's uh, a discussion of, of, of even the most minute topic that I think in a lot of books you get like a so like deck selection. You know, you get like a sentence about like find what's right for you, but also get a right away. And you have you know this big thing on deck selection and uh, shuffling the cards. People might say mix the cards, however is comfortable for you. But you have an entire chapter devoted to shuffling the cards. So uh, can you talk about your approach? It's a very how did how did you approach the writing of this book and what you wanted to cover? Actually, that's funny that you say it's thorough because I'm, I keep on kicking myself about how not thorough it is. I, I forgot the three sectionaries. How did I do that? I don't even know. So I, there's no mention. I mean, there's, I think there should be superficial mention of it. But there's a lot of things I left out, you know, mentioning the Spanish tradition, for example. So I really feel that it's not thorough at all, unfortunately. But um, I just wrote about what I would want to know if I were a beginner tarot student. Absolutely, it's a very it's a very good foundation with the tarot, but then it's also a very good um, intermediate level. Uh, once you get the, the, like the first third is like a very good you know foundation in this is tarot, and then it moves into a much more uh, you know in, in more advanced 
approach. And um, is there anything that you're especially proud of that you included in there? That because uh, it's easy, um, it's easy to be critical of of our own work. But what what about it? You know, are you still really excited about? Hmm. What am I? Oh, hold on. Oh, okay. One second. Let me get off. What am I proud of? Um, are the elves bothering well, you? Is that what's happening? I think those are my elves, I'm afraid. My elves are not as well-behaved as yours. You, you you, were able to have them leave when you wanted them oh, to. Oh, Not so much. My my magic is not as advanced. Well, so that's true. I'm sorry about that. Um, well, what do I like about it? I, I feel, for me, that the cyclopedia section is relatively comprehensive, you know. Um, it covered, it, instead of just having the, um, oh, it's, if you're write, reading about love, it means this. If you're reading about work, it means that. And it's more about understanding the core essence of the card so that you can build your own more uh, mundane meanings. That's what I'm most proud of. Mm-hmm. And that's the section, uh, the, the cyclopedia is the section where you, go card by card through the, the deck and uh, share your interpretation of the card. Were those, were those from your notes? Um, I was wondering, I was reading, I was like, I wonder if this is like the, the combined notes of like that Benabo was using when she was learning tarot that we're, we're getting to see here. Or did you create something totally new for the book? No, it's definitely from my own notes. I mean, I, I didn't I didn't start from scratch. I started from uh, copious amounts of journaling that I've been doing over the years, which is maybe why it's so large. But um, a lot of the but I wanted you know once you're a published writer, you have to make sure you you know you aren't taking other people's ideas, right? And so when it comes to card meetings, it's really difficult because, as you know, as a reader, you know, you take from different sources and then they become your personal, uh, your personal knowledge as well. But it's not really your idea. So then I had to go back into old texts and figure out where I got different ideas. So mm-hmm. I hope that I did a thorough job so that if somebody wants to trace my steps backwards and find their primary sources, they can do that. They can see what weights said and what parts of weights interpretation, well, not interpretation, it's his, it's his tech, you know, what parts of it he, uh, I took from from his book, what parts of it I took from Ethan Gray, what parts of it I took from Mary Greer, etc. So hopefully people can follow along and see how I put it all together into this sort of more, you know, I guess it's sort of like a mosaic of meanings. Uh, um, a favorite chapter at the moment, <laughs> um, which is something I've never seen discussed in any other tarot book, which is um, Chapter 18, The Five Components of Circumstance. I thought that was a really cool way to look at reading um, and that I'd not seen ever before. I'm looking at it right now. And uh, uh, could you talk a little bit about that? Is that is that too, too yeah. wildly specific a question? F-M-K-B-E-A. I always memorize that. That's my own personal mnemonic. So it's force majeure, karma, disposition, education. But education is like knowledge, you know, education, mm-hmm. knowledge, what you know, um, and action. Action is the, the next step to take, the next course to take. And the five components of circumstance is based on um, a Chinese proverb. And the Chinese proverb is saying that a person's life is based on those five factors. It's a little bit different in the in the in the Chinese rendering of it. Um, it. It's a little bit more fatalistic. So I made minor modifications of it so that it makes a little bit more sense to a Western audience, and also to me too. It resonates more to me the one that I have. 
And so I took it from a Chinese proverb, and I was applying it myself in my own readings for myself and for others. And I just found that it was very, um, it, it covered a lot of ground. Just even if you pull, even if you use it as in pulling five cards, it covers a lot of ground. And when you do a full spread, um, sometimes it's very difficult to figure out where to start if you have, for example, a 20-card spread, right? So seeing it through the framework of MM, uh, FMKDEA, the five components, it's a lot easier to deconstruct a very large spread. And how cool is it? And and since you mentioned uh, the the Chinese proverb and things, um, I, I'm curious because also in in your new book that's that you have just recently announced um, that we will talk about uh, a little later on uh, food talismans, um, you know, and it says that that's coming from the Eastern esoteric tradition. And I'm wondering what are some of the differences you've noticed com- when we look at say an Eastern or a Chinese-based background, philosophy, perspective um, on esotericism in general, perhaps on Tarot and that kind of thing more specifically, compared to the perspective or the approach that's taken in in the Western traditions and, and, and from Western uh, texts and, and things? Um, I think it's complicated because there isn't a homogenous Western and there isn't a homogenous Eastern, right? So if you wanted to just talk to a Western audience about craft or about how to approach tarot, whether it's fortune telling, whether it's divination, whether it's fatalistic, whether it's free will, you're going to have um, multifaceted answers. And if you try to assert one, one generalization, you're going to have 20 people on your tail immediately, right? And so with the Chinese esoteric tradition, it's the same way. So initially, I thought they were very, very different. I thought that the Chinese were more fatalistic. I also thought they talked more in absolutist terms. And uh, they tend to be more analytical in terms of how they, for example, they're more into their form of astrology. It's, it's kind of astrology, but I don't know how else to describe it. It's like astrology and numerology all mixed into one. And so it tends to be more analytical. There are lots of tables and charts that you have to use, and it's it's based on a form of science, their own form of science, right? Whereas when it comes to tarot, there's this very strong school of intuition where technically you don't even need a book. It's more about connecting to a greater energy above you. But then the more esoteric research I did into um, the older the, the older forms of uh, Chinese esotericism, it actually aligns very much so with Western craft in a way that really, uh, you know, startled me, which is why I decided to write this second book. Are we saying it right, by the way? It's food Talisman? Yeah, it's food Talisman. Okay. And has anyone yet made an I pity the food joke yet? <laughs> a few joke? Yeah. No, yeah. no, the I pity the food <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. Oh, not that, that that wasn't I, a no, joke. No, Mr. T, a Mr. T reference. Okay, sorry, I had to be the first to be so proud. <laughs> oh, so we can return to first. ascended esoteric topics, but I needed to bring us down to the lowest common denominator for a minute to make my uh, '80s uh, entertainment reference. So that's cool. And you, right? Did 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 your interest in in tarot and related esoteric things come early in your life? Um, or or did the more intellectual side, like were you a tarot reader before an attorney? Or did did the esoteric interest in the tarot and that kind of thing come later? 
Oh, I was definitely a tarot reader before I was an attorney. I, I was doing all sorts of uh, metaphysical stuff, shall we say, way before I was a lawyer. <laughs> so, And then it was after I went to law school and and um, adapted a, a adopted a more analytical approach just to life in general, you know, looking at everything through a more rationalistic perspective. I wanted to see if I could put tarot through that same framework, and that's sort of how I fleshed out the book, Holistic Tarot. And did you ever find yourself wrestling within yourself a conflict between that intuitive side versus intellectual side, or did you find that you were able to reconcile them very easily? In the beginning, I thought that they wouldn't be able to be reconciled, and I see that that, that's a very um, mainstream approach to people see that the two are mutually exclusive. But the more I study esotericism, the more I realize there's a very strict science to it. You know, there are definitely metaphysical laws, physical laws. I mean, they do follow certain patterns. There's a lot of um, key key ideas, key tenets that are universal, whether you're talking about Taoism or Western paganism. And when, you know, and so that's why I, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. And then also with with law, um, whenever you get into uh, groundbreaking areas of the law, it's incredibly intuitive. You know, it, it's not, if you don't have precedent to work on, people are working off of intuition. So the two go hand in hand. Very cool. Could you tell us a little bit, how did, so what inspired you to move to the, the your second book? And you recently announced, and uh, what, how, how long has that one been bubbling in the works? Um. Well, I've been practicing craft for as long as I can remember, and it actually is something that I picked up from my mother. And so I've always had, I, I grew up with Eastern esotericism, but I never thought of it as esotericism because it was such a part of everyday life that, you know, you don't think of, you know, running on the treadmill as something unique, right? It's just sort mm-hmm. of part and parcel to life. So crafting a food for something that you feel that isn't within your control was part and parcel to life. It wasn't really weird to me, you know. Mm -hmm. When I was a child, if I was scared of the dark, my mom would use craft to get me to not be scared of the dark, you know. So if you have that growing up, you don't think of it as, as a cult. Right, mm-hmm. but then with the Western, and and then you go, but then I go to school, and when I go to school, you have that inculcation, and then indoctrination, I mean, and so then when I reach into, um, you know, Western occultism, that's occult to me. Does that make sense? Because it's different mm-hmm. from the it's different from the canonical teachings that I get in in school, um, among friends, in my social networks. Whereas the quote unquote Eastern occultism wasn't really occultism in my mind because it was so much a part of my life that I didn't see it as something that was esoteric, right? Mm-hmm. So, I don't know if I answered your question. I think I went No, you totally my, did. Yeah. You totally did. Okay. <laughs> um, and I was wondering, so someone who is of the Western <laughs> persuasion who is interested or, or their interest is piqued in um, exploring this, how can they do so in a way that is cult, like sensitive and not barging into someone else's house and tracking all kinds of mud? Uh, basically, basically, how to avoid appropriation. Yeah. 
Well, in the Sue book, I, I wrote a whole chapter on cultural appropriation. Mm-hmm. Um, Taoism itself, so Taoism is very difficult to define. You look into 10, 20 different uh, scholarly treatises on Taoism. Within the first chapter, either the preface, the introduction, or chapter one, the author will say that you can't define Taoism. It's very hard to talk about. You don't know what's native and what's been sort of you know, inbred into it from different cultures, because wherever Taoism goes, it sort of absorbs the um, cultures, even the religions. So there's a lot of Buddhism intertwined with Taoism in a way that you really, it's really hard to separate it out sometimes. Mm-hmm. And you also have Shintoism in Buddhism, you have Confucianism, legalism, if you're talking about the earlier lineages of, of um, Taoism practice, and then, of course, Hinduism as well. And then they, they take the gods and deities from these various cultures, uh, various religions, change the names, change identities, you know, goes from male to female. There's a lot of things that happen. And so Taoism is sort of based on appropriation, if you want to put it in a crass way. Mm-hmm. And I don't see why, uh, and, and craft really transcends culture. I believe when you're talking about craft, it's about advancement of your knowledge of a metaphysical dimension to the physical dimension that you live in. And whether or not you're using your vocabulary or using this newfound vocabulary through Taoism, you're still talking about the same thing. And so I don't think that it's cultural appropriation to take bits and pieces from the book that I'm writing, for example, and Mm -hmm. crafting your own and mixing that example with runes, if you mix that with runes, I don't see that as wrong. I see that as the advancement of craft. Well, I just and, and I, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that's very Tao of you because the Tao is all about the breath. Oh, that's um, true. Very well. Okay. So, but, and you know, and I think what you were just saying there was something that's also very Taoist um, in the sense that <laughs> it, it really kind of says not to really not to worry about, but not to resolve or, or or stress about resolving the contradictions in yourself or in your life, but instead to learn how to accept your nature. And when you're talking about these, whether it's appropriation or not, it's more a sense of if I can understand, acknowledge, work with, and and respect the the nature of the things, there's no reason why they can't start to overlap or work together in some way because we're not trying to steal from we're actually just bringing them into the same room and saying okay now let's see what you do when you come in here together exactly here's what i think actually so my example of cultural appropriation that i give would be the swastika the swastika was a sacred symbol that represented fortune prosperity blessings and then it was taken by the west and the meaning of it was completely changed. It was taken out of the context that it was in. And so then those who are trying to use the swastika in a way to honor the original culture and the original intent look kind of like maybe they're anti-Semitic, right? Mm -hmm. So that's one of the issues. That would be cultural appropriation. Now, in terms of the foo, let's say you thought that it was really pretty and you draw one as a Saturday afternoon art project and you put it on your handbag because it's pretty to you and it's a fashion statement, it's fashionable to you. I would be uncomfortable with that because it's something that's sacred to me. 
Mm-hmm. So for a person to treat it lightly, then that would be uncomfortable. But if you are treating it with the same level of respect and veneration that I am, I don't see the problem with that. If you treat my craft with the same uh, level of respect you would treat your own craft, and then you, you combine the two together in, in synthesis, that's, that's really cool. I really like that distinction about the... Um you know, like what you know, where, where, how would you treat it? You know, something that, that of of your own culture or something that your family would consider sacred. You know, would you staple a Jesus onto your back? You know, onto your bag. Like, would you do? You know, would you just put that anywhere? Like, is there something? Where, where's the line for you? What is crass? Right? What is what is over the top? Okay, so apply that to the other cultures that you're borrowing from. I I like that distinction yeah. quite a bit. So and we've all been using the word. Can you maybe just um, explain what foo is? Wow, what is foo? Um, well, let's see. So my understanding of sigil crafting in the Western tradition would be that it's just one form of craft. You know, their craft encompasses multiple different forms of uh, of approaches and, and practices, performances, what have you. But you don't necessarily need to create a sigil for everything that you do, right? Sigils aren't part, aren't aren't integrated into every single aspect of spell crafting or every single aspect. Whereas, um, based on my firsthand knowledge and the research that I did, cra- uh, the foo is a sigil. It, it's brawn. It's made out of ideograms. Um, that's about as much as you can really say. From there, it goes in multiple directions. So it's really hard to generalize. But basically, it's written. You know, it's either carved or drawn, but it's written down. It's, it's some form of code. It's some form of language that is uh, supposed to bridge the spiritual world and the human world. And the practitioner is a messenger between the two worlds and uses the food sort of as an edict or an order. The same way um, back in the day, the emperor would send an official with his, um, you know, with the inscription of his decrees or his laws and then stamp it and then give it to his messenger to take, you know, across the countryside to the various, you know, places and say, this is the edict from the emperor. So that's kind of what the practitioner does in a way. The fu is the edict from the heavens, from uh, your deities, from the spirits, and it is an edict to uh, have something happen. And usually what it is, it's an edict from a higher deity through the practitioner to a lower deity to make something happen. And even if um, you're doing something like, for example, the, the craft of longevity or immortality, they, they, they use alchemy, they use a lot of different silvers and metals and mercury, so there's a whole, you know, spell crafting, bubbling, and herbs, but at the end there's always a food that's involved as part of the craft. So in Taoism, the food is the foundation of craft. Without the food, there is no craft. And so it's 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 a written form of um, I guess it is a form of magic, a form of spell that's used to tap into an unseen world. And, and when you use the word craft, now from a Western standpoint, that often makes people think of things like either witchcraft or magical traditions and that kind of thing. But you know, even in the title of your book, the the Tao of Craft, what what is it that you're referring to when you use that term related to this? 
So when I was looking into the older text, there was a text from, I can't remember which dynasty, but it was around 480 that it was written. And the author is unknown, but it's about, uh, it, it doesn't talk necessarily about witchcraft in any way or magic or spells. It's sort of a book that's part philosophy, and it's about um, just understanding nature, natural, what's natural, right? And so they're saying in the book it says that um, the natural world is governed by particular uh, unseen forces. And when there's a problem with your body, for example, when there's a problem with the environment that you're in, it's because something in the metaphysical dimension to the physical dimension is off balance. And they have a whole vocabulary for that. You have the chi, which is the force, the vital force, the yin and the yang. Then you have the heaven, the trinity. Then you have the wuxing, the five phases. So these are how you learn how to, it's a science. It's a whole um, body of metaphysical laws for how to deal with the metaphysical energies so that you can correct the issues with the physical world. And that would be craft. Craft would be delving into what is unseen to correct what is visible. Very cool. So the search for balance in some ways. Right. Right. I mean, oh gosh, I hope I didn't say that incorrectly or in, in a way that's... No, 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 no. Okay, making sure. <laughs> um, it's very cool. So before the call, um, I was doing a little bit of research. I was like, oh, I wonder who else has written books about this lately. Let me let me just jump on Amazon and find out, you know, what there is to know. Since, you know uh-huh. And there's not any that I... Uh, found to hand. Um, this isn't something that it, this is something that not a lot of people are writing about. Am I right? Um, it's by itself, no, but it's definitely in lots and lots and lots lots of um, scholarly work. So if you mm-hmm. if you look more into academic publications, a lot of the books that are published by universities or mm-hmm. doctoral dissertations, they're going to address um, Taoist craft, and mm-hmm. part of that they can't help but talk about the foo and they'll talk about the history of it they'll talk about the texts from uh, the Taoist religious scriptures that mention how to craft food so there's that as for how to actually craft one a, a more practical manual I haven't seen anything like that in the in the um, English language which brings me to so with that you know with, with most of what's being written or has been written so scholarly how do you approach creating the layman's guide um, for this? Or maybe I'm mischaracterizing what, what I don't know. Oh, no, it is it's definitely okay. the layman's guide. It's definitely you, the layman's guide. How do you guide. tackle that when it hasn't been done yet? Because that seems really, really challenging and awesome. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I've successfully done so, first of all. But uh, hmm. I, well, I, I write it in plain English. And I just the reason there's so many citations is because I want people who are truly interested to be able to, you know, work backwards and find the primary sources and read those. Because I'm in a lot of it I'm interpreting. So when I take, for example, the classics of the classics of the uh Fu Talisman, that's mm-hmm. one of the older texts. I'm reading it in Chinese and it doesn't make sense even to people who, who are literate in Chinese. It's like, you know, heaven, earth, sun, dragon flies over the moon period, right? 
And so you're just like, I don't know what the hell that means. And so uh, I interpret it through what I, I interpret it the way I think it should be interpreted. But I, I, I do need a real practitioner to go back, if they're truly interested, to go into the primary source and find the interpretation themselves. Mm. So there's that. But um, I think I can make it more layman's terms because I teach you how to do it. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's a, at the end of the day, it's a how-to book. So you should be able to take this book, follow the instructions, and craft your own food. And is this is this something that is, uh, even though there may not, as far as we can find, perhaps be any books or anything in English, at least, um, about this, is this still something that is practiced in China or other parts of the world? Is this is this still something that's a part of certain people's everyday tradition, or is this seen as something very historical that you are reviving or reconstructing in some way out of the scholarly tomes and into a more hands-on, practical, let's do it? There's two answers to that. So one is incredibly pervasive. You go into any temple, even here in Oakland, if you go to Oakland and you walk into a temple, there's going to be somebody, an in-house guy who, you know, probably has a pot belly and, you know, he's smoking a cigar and you say you want a foo and he'll be like, what do you want? And he'll craft you one. And so but he's like a, an ordained Taoist priest. I mean no disrespect. I'm just observing. Right on. No, Okay, mm-hmm. you know, so um, I can say that too, right? Yeah, you're allowed. And, and, and <laughs> I'm allowed, right? It's like, hey, I'm I'm, I'm yellow. I can say this. So you know, there's this there's this sense that it's everywhere. And there's, um, for example, in Taiwan, in Hong Kong, when you get into Southeast Asia, Malaysia, Singapore, it's a huge, huge part of their culture. You ask anybody about the food, they'll know what it is. However, what they know is sort of um, it's like a pop culture form of the foo, do you know what I mean? So, for example, if I live in if I live in in the U.S. and I'm I'm not a practitioner in any way whatsoever, but you say witchcraft, I have this very vague idea of what witchcraft is, but it's mostly littered with stereotypes, right? And so that's the same thing in the East, where people have a very um, uh, a romanticized idea of what the foo is. They don't really understand the history of it per se. Not because, not because they don't. They just aren't into it. And so what I wanted to do was really bring it to a very serious academic level and go back into basically the same thing I did with the holistic tarot. Take something that your common person, your everyday person, might not take too seriously and convince that person that it is, in fact, an incredibly serious scholarly and historical craft. That's what I wanted to do. Awesome. Excellent. So you're going to be the uh the the emissary <laughs> that makes the metaphysical Western uh community aware of this and hopefully you will be celebrated rather than reviled for doing that. Has there been any resistance at all from people who are like, don't teach white people this? Like, um, take everything. I haven't, I haven't told anybody about it really, um, because it, the the publishing of it happened really really fast, and so basically the only person I asked for approval was my mom. She was basically the only person, and she said it was fine. <laughs> so oh, really? you know, she rep- she represents all all people everywhere. So you know, she said it was okay. My mom said <laughs> it was okay. <laughs> my mom said I could do this. And now you told us out. 
Because I know your mom, uh, you mentioned your mom still doesn't quite completely understand the tarot thing (laughs) when you talk to her about it. So is this something a little bit closer to home that she was able to, okay, I understand what you're writing about this time? She's an expert at this. She's the one who's been helping me. Yeah. So when I when I encounter something I don't really understand, she's the person I go to. She she has become my scholar in, in a lot of ways. And but she she's more of a, a folk practitioner. So she she practices it. She doesn't necessarily have a historical understanding of it. And when you get into the literary aspects, that's when I ask my father. My father is much more of an erudite. He's he's a, he's a little literary scholar. He's a scientist. He's a physicist. So he's really more interested in. in and like me, the more academic aspect. So I, I get the best of both worlds when I have a question. Excellent. So can I, if I may, ask you a question that's a little more about your personal philosophy of things? Um, sure. And you, you have mentioned that you have an understanding of the way the universe works related to a conscious um sorry a, a collective unconscious and something that you refer to as the god principle and i'm just mm. wondering if you might be able to elucidate a bit on that and tell us a bit more about what you mean by that and what that represents as to how the universe is structured or works uh, from your perspective on that so based on the studies of both eastern and western esoteric traditions that I've that I have um, pursued for the past for as long as I've lived, um, I find that there's one thing that they have in common, and there's that's this idea that if you know your own body, if you understand the microcosm of the self, you in fact understand the macrocosm of the universe, and there's this idea of as above, so below in eastern craft as well. And understanding how your fingers move and um, how your respiratory system works is the same as understanding astrology, astronomy, and numerology. And it's because we're all related. It's this idea that within our microcosm, the body, the self, there is a, a, a circuit, a, a, an energy force that makes and that's your personal chi. So whenever you're, if you're sick, for example, uh, according to traditional Chinese medicine, you, you you balance out the personal chi. But all of every individual, every single, the, every one of these closed circuit microcosms are connected to every to every other microcosm, which forms the larger macrocosm. And this larger macrocosm is the collective chi, and uh, it's connected through our unconscious part, through the unconscious part of our mind. And this part is where I speculate. That's where I'm using, you know, langu- I'm using sort of Western language to describe things that I, I've been reading about, right? So it seems like it's sort of connected through. Your your mind, your head, between your eyes, that's how they describe it. So to me, that sounds like the third eye. That sounds like the crown chakra. That sounds like some sort of a collective unconscious that, that um, unifies all of us. And if this theory is true, it would explain why tarot divination works. It would explain why eating divination works, why divination in general works. It would explain why astrology works. And so that's sort of the God principle that I talk about, that this, the, the, the reason, you know, things happen in a way that seems supernatural or, or blessings take place or miracles take place because a, a, a concentrated amount of chi energy that is bigger than the personal chi, where other chi from the collective is um, accumulated on top, creates something that feels 
deity-like, God-like. And so that's why I refer to it as the God principle. We love to anthropomorphize. I mean, I, my teddy bears, even the way I talk about my stuffed animals, I'm very careful with how I place them. I'm afraid that they're alone. I get sad if they're sad. You know what I mean? I'm afraid that they're lonely. My cat, don't even get me started about my cat. So it makes, <laughs> right, you know what I mean? So it makes sense that we would, we would feel this energy, feel this presence, have this um, understanding, this subconscious understanding of something much bigger than us, something that's connected, that we're connected to, and then personify it in a way. And that's why we have the God principle. We have this idea of deity. Wow. I hope I explained that correctly. Yeah, I, I'm I feel just... like I was rambling. I, I heard myself ramble. No, no. I like, <laughs> well, No, I loved it. And you even brought it down with the teddy bears and the <laughs> back down back to earth uh, and <laughs> I just have this tendency when everyone says anything profound to say something flippant. So I'm working against that right now. That was actually, that was a really very, very, very cool uh, interpretation of like, you know, how systems work, how, how, how they're all interconnected. Cause either, either one of them is true or none of them are true or they're all true. And it just seems more likely that they're all true. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. Or else, you know, divination, you know, divination doesn't work because tarot works. Divination works because divination works. So, I, yeah, uh, yeah, that's why all the fusions are so awesome, and I love what you've done um, with that in in your writing. And and do you think that combining combining things from different cultures or traditions or um, approaches to things, like a food talisman with a rune, do you think that maybe in doing that it helps? to uncover or connect to a more subtle, deeper level of that collective unconscious and that God principle that we might not get to without the combination and just doing one or the other? I think the God principle itself is objective. It's sort of the joke my husband always um, says. You know, for example, if if I don't speak, if, I, if I'm not, if I'm not fluent in Sanskrit, can I can I pray to uh, Buddha in in Chinese or English? Will he understand English, right? And so there's this idea that if it comes from a specific culture, then we have to use the vocabulary and the the ideas from that culture in order to tap into that aspect of the culture. And that's all still part of the social construct. You really need to get past the social construct if you're talking about the God principle. And so the God principle is just something you yourself tap into. It's about no one else. It's only you and how you connect into that ether, that greater universe, that collective unconscious, that cosmic chi. And if using Sanskrit doesn't really work for you because you're too caught up in whether or not you're pronouncing the words correctly, you're not making the connection fail. But if you can use part of it because it gives you a sense of, you know, uh, there's a sacredness to it, and so it gives you that misses, that that feeling. It takes you to a different level of consciousness. Plus, you use something that's familiar with you, that resonates very, very intensely and passionately with you. Then you're able to invoke that connection that you need. So, I think you, if you really want, if you if you really care about connecting to the God principle, you have to combine what works for you. You know what I mean? Yeah, because I think the advantage, it, it, to me, it's like a stream. And it's like, yeah. 
even if I don't understand what I'm saying in Sanskrit, there is this mm -hmm. stream of energy that has built up over time from people using that, like, say, a mantra that has been said for thousands of years in Sanskrit. Um, there is this stream of energy that has been built up that I have perhaps never directly tapped into. I may have had a similar experience, but not quite the same thing. And just by attempting to say it in Sanskrit or writing those um, the Sanskrit characters, it it opens that stream of energy to me that has been built up that I may not have tasted before that now starts to, even in a small way, flow into what I might do normally and and unlocks or uncovers another subtle aspect of that connection or that God principle or how I can work with that or be connected to that in some way. That's exactly what I was taught as well. So I was taught to, for certain mantras and um, reciting certain sutras, I was taught to do it in Pali, even though I don't understand a word of Pali. So that was the, the culture I was raised in. And the idea, like you said, is that there's a frequency. It, it establishes a frequency. And if you can raise your, if you, by reciting that sutra, it raises, it changes your personal vibration, your personal frequency, so that it matches the frequency of that God principle. So, so with that in mind, in your book on the Fu Talismans, are you going to show people how to do that using the Chinese characters and things, or are you going to show them the the process, but then have them uh, do that in, like, say, their native language, if it's English or whatever? Both. So I have I have mantras in there in Sanskrit, Pali, and Mandarin Chinese, and so it's it's uh, and the Mandarin Chinese isn't even so-called um, isn't authentic. You know, that's from Mahayana and Chan Buddhism. So Mahayana and Chan Buddhism will use Mandarin, Chinese, you know, they'll speak it in Chinese, but a lot of more orthodox religions and even orthodox Taoism is going to say you can't say it in Chinese, you have to say it, you know, in, in, in Pali. So it just depends, right? And I, I, I give all of that. I, I look into... There's so many lineages, that's the thing. So I try to take the, look at the history of, of Taoist craft and pick the, you know, the, the most prominent lineages and only look at their public records because I do want to be referenced. Well, and I only have access to the public records. So I look at the public records and from there glean what I can. And most of their scriptures are public. So I pull from their scriptures to show you how, um, how it's done. And then I also explain how it, it doesn't connect with you. Don't push it. You know, it connects with you. Of course, that's what you want to use. But if it doesn't, you need to start from a more foundational, a more basic level, something that's familiar with you, and then build up, right? So I, I do show how one can craft your own mantras and invocations. And in some ways, I think this is a very Taoist kind of thing because uh, another principle or aspect of Taoism that it, it makes me think of is this idea where Taoism says that our nature is ever-changing, and yet it's always the same. And yeah. I think that that's what we're talking about here, is using Sanskrit, even though the, the language or the culture or whatever may be ever-changing, the, the 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 nature of that that energy that has built up or that is within that is still the same regardless 
And even yeah. with tarot, it's kind of like that, too, because it's always the same tarot deck in the sense either we use the same deck all the time or it's just always the, the structure of a tarot deck, you know, the major arcana, the suits, etc. But mm-hmm. every reading is different. So every reading can change, but the nature of tarot itself is always the same. And that, I think, taps into that Taoist principle um, from the tarot standpoint, as well as from what you were talking about and uh, how you're including all of the different aspects in the in the new book with um, the, the Sanskrit, the Pali, etc. Yeah, that is very Tao, and I hope that that comes across also in this second book as well, where you know you you every lineage, every even every individual practitioner will approach craft in their own unique way. But ultimately, if you're successful at craft, no matter which culture you're coming from, the basic ontological principles are the same, whether you're talking about Western tradition or Eastern tradition. Very cool. And so North Atlantic Press um, is also publishing this one as well, right? I mean, they published your first book, Holistic Tarot. Mm -hmm. And they're publishing the second one. They were the one who... Because I wasn't, I wasn't sure what I was going to do with this, and then they were like, "Oh, we'd love to publish it." I'm like, "Oh," <laughs> and so that's how it started out. No, I think it, I, I loved your approach because they were not a, uh, yeah, you mentioned they're not a tarot publisher, and so they were, were were they just immediately keen on taking on this project too, or is it the success of Holistic Tarot that's convinced them, or how did that work? It, I think I, I speculate it's both. It is the, um, the 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 foundation built from holistic tarot, but it's also because the founders of North Atlantic Books has a very strong occult interest as well. So, oh, nice. Okay, you know? yeah. picked a good one. <laughs> cool. Do you know? I did. Can, you, can you tell us a little bit about when that book will probably be available? I have no idea. It's um, I finished my final draft. So it's mm-hmm. my book. The book is done. I'm just going in. For example, I'm obtaining permissions for some of the photographs. I'm mm-hmm. just doing the the nitty gritty stuff. Not not any of the writing. All of the stuff in the writing has been done. And so, uh And then it's in the hands of the editors. Okay, cool. All right. So it might be a little while before we get to see that yeah. one gracing the shelves, but we'll be looking forward to that. And if people want to learn more about you <laughs> uh, after listening to this, where can they find? Where can they? Where can people find you? Uh, well, there's my website benabellwen.com, but I'm mm-hmm. pretty active on social media as well. So Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook are probably the best ways to actually talk to me. So. Mm-hmm. And you'll be presenting at uh, Bats coming up yes. this weekend. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're before you before we we close out? Can you tell us what you're going to be presenting? Are you allowed? Is that is, is that secret? No, it's not secret. Well, it's half secret. Um, I'm talking about the theory of divination and fortune telling from a Chinese perspective by diving into the etymological history of the Chinese characters for fortune telling and divination, looking at the seal scripts of those and seeing what we can learn from that to become either fortune tellers or diviners with the tarot. Hoo-ha. You hit both of the camps, right? Those are two very important, prominent, entrenched camps, <laughs> and, you, and you speak to both of them. So, 
Well yeah, done. And I espouse the theory, yeah, and I espouse the theory for the two approaches based on a traditional Chinese craft. Excellent, excellent. Cool. Thank you so much for joining us and uh, and talking to us uh, and guiding us through the mystery that is Fu. Uh, this Thank evening. you so much for having me. I wish we're... I didn't talk so much and could just no, listen to you. I think no, you are so good. funny. Oh, no, no, you guys are hilarious. And then I got uh, on this topic. No, <laughs> no, it's weight. This is a weighty topic, and it's uh, you know, it's uh, it, it was excellent. So I am I am now a foo beginner. So I'm not going to make a foo bar joke. I'm going to pass it to Heisey. <laughs> well, yes, and I, I of course will say. I will see both of you this Saturday, right? Yeah, it is yes. true. It is true. Cool. And so, so to close, here's here's a quick question. Well, two questions for you. What was your first tarot deck and why? And what is your favorite deck and why? My first tarot deck. Well, the very first one I got was a gift. It was the Tarot Nova, but mm. I wasn't making heads or tails of it. There was no way I was reading the Tarot Nova at that age without any books. <laughs> and then eventually I, I got my hands on the Goddess Tarot. I can't remember which came second, the Goddess Tarot or the, the traditional the Rider Waite, the one with the yellow box, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think whichever one, I got both around the same time. I wasn't liking the Rider Waite, the yellow box one. Which you know, you can see why. And then by the way, yellow box right away. <laughs> I didn't it's say anything. The blight. <laughs> why is it ahead. everywhere? It's everywhere. I'm Maybe so the glad for the way the centennial. The centennial is excellent. It's gorgeous. The original, yeah. the the Albano weight is good. I can't yeah. stand the universal, but people like it. Uh, but you know, but the the yellow box is the sort of like. Wonder bread of tarot, <laughs> so right, yeah, it is anyway, a wonder bread. Fair. Um, my favorite right now is I'm just I'm a boring person. It would be the Wade Smith Centennial, just because mm-hmm. I like to work with the original artwork. But you know, I can't afford the original artwork, so the Wade Smith Centennial is the affordable option for me. It is. It is. Yeah. Cool. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thank you, so thank you very much. And uh, everyone and, who's listening should run out and pick up a copy of Holistic Tarot. And should also run out and get their tickets or at least put on their calendar to go to BATS this weekend, if for no other reason than to meet Benabel Wen in person and bask in the glory of her wisdom yeah. directly from her presence. That's right. <laughs> She's a revelation. It is. Wow, big words. <laughs> Thanks. Yes. So, thank you very much. Thank you. And Charlie and I will be right back with our Living the Queer Life segment. Um, we're going to take a quick little break and be right back with that. And, of course, if you wanted to get into the queue to get a reading, you are certainly welcome to do that. You can just uh, connect in from the show page, or you can call 646-716-5510 in order to get into the queue. So, we will be right back.
You're listening to the Amethyst Oracle, Divination with a Queer Twist, with hosts Hi C and Charlie Harrington on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Find out more at Facebook.com slash The Amethyst Oracle. Enjoy the show. We're talking to you. And we are back from our little musical break. You're listening to the Amethyst Historical. I'm High C. I'm here with Charlie, who you hear shuffling guards. <laughs> and that is in preparation for our Living the Queer Lives segment, which is just each of us pulling from our oracle of choice for a little guidance, insight, and information on the coming month and how we can live and fulfill our queerest selves during that time, which means ultimately being our true, unique, authentic self in all ways. So what is it that you are bringing to us this evening, Charlie, in terms of the the oracle of choice you have there? Well, usually when we start this, you have some like bountiful astrological information to share, and I always feel a little, you know, in, in, inferior. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I know that so I tried to get a little bit of an idea of what's going on. So Venus is retrograde, right? It is true. It is true. It is, okay, right on. I got one. So with Venus being retrograde, I grabbed the Manara erotic tarot deck to read oh, with. Oh, my, my. <laughs> I felt like one of two things might happen. One, I could sort of help people repair that. Um, or 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 two... <laughs> Like, if not love, then lust, right? So, well, what okay, right. generally during a Venus retrograde, is there any like, like, you know, so like during a hurricane, you have to like tape down your windows or whatever the hell you're supposed to do? Like, what do you do during a Venus retrograde? <laughs> you handcuff them down. There we go. <laughs> okay, anyway, um, so this is uh, a, a, the Minara erotic deck. It's very much uh, so it's a uh, kind of famous. So, Minara is a comic, an Italian comic book artist. He's famous for his erotic work and most recently he's been in the news because he was asked to do a the cover for Marvel Comics uh, issue number one of Spider-Woman and uh, the artwork he did was deemed inappropriately uh, sexual. Uh, people rose up in arms and like a true Italian erotic artist he said aren't there real problems in the world? <laughs> And that didn't go over well with sensitive American comic book uh, internet users. So each de- each card in the deck uh, features some of his artwork, uh, originally his existing artwork um, that they have uh, decided to use. And so in this, I, I pulled the Ace of Water, and the Ace of Water shows a woman in um, oh you know that you know like the in an American Revolution film there's the red coats. And uh, they're wearing those nice red, crisp uh, military uniforms. And they have one of those nice black hats. Uh, you know, it's kind of like an admiral's hat, maybe. So we have a woman who's um, wearing her 
admiral uh, uniform, and she's busting out of it. Her breasts are exposed. Her lacy things are kind of falling away, and she's gripping um, gripping the clothing. And um, she's also uh, biting her lower lip as she does this. And in the background, there's a, a big ship, um, probably full of semen, uh, on a moonlit sea. Now, um, um, a, a ship full of what? Of, of, of semen, you know. Uh, naval types, right? Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, so here's just to give you what the little white book had to say about it: uh, sensuality, falling in love, a never-ending stream. See what I was talking about earlier? Uh, astrological meaning: the element of water, emotional states of awareness. So, um, my advice, based on this being the Ace of Cups, and this being a woman in a military uniform that she's busting out of figuratively and literally um this is not a time to be straight laced dear dear listeners of the queer persuasion or or otherwise uh this is a time for letting it well up um in in my personal uh, magical tradition the the summer is the water tide it's ruled by cancer so it is a dreamlike time when we are not necessarily um in a get it done bit by bit, do all the steps, cross the T's, dot the I's kind of way. It's a, it's a strange time when dreams are important. So um, I'm telling everyone to to, to like this young um, mariner, uh, to give in <laughs> and bust out of the seams a little bit, and don't worry so much about. I'm not supposed to say this, but don't worry so much about boundaries uh, right now. You know, like, find find your own new boundaries. Like, discover the limit here. The only way to find the line is to uh, cross it. So, uh, please don't get, get us sued. But what are your thoughts, Heisey, on this Ace well, we of know Cups? Well, we, we know a good lawyer now. There we go. We, we he was just on the show. I don't know if this is that kind of law. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, well, and since you had asked um, about Venus retrograde... Mm-hmm. Um, the the two the two primary areas that that kind of covers with Venus is uh, relationships of all sorts and finances, and so a Venus retrograde oftentimes we will find that um, people and relationships from the past reappear or come back up in some way in our life during this time. Uh, whether that means literally the people suddenly show up, like we suddenly get a message from a, a a lover of seven years ago in Facebook, or we find ourselves meeting someone or getting into a relationship that brings to mind a person or a relationship from the past. And the key here is to look at it and say, why is that coming back up? What is that reminding me of? And it, what is it that I need to take from that and do with that? It can be a really, it's not necessarily a good time to start new relationships, but it can be a really good time for revisiting or rekindling a relationship. It's a good time for uh, looking at and exploring some of the issues going on in currently existing relationships, because oftentimes a Venus retrograde period is a make or break period for people. They are either willing to face those issues that keep coming up over and over again, or they find that the issues have 
overwhelmed the relationship or there's no getting past them and it's time to bring the relationship to a close. So there is an aspect of Venus retrograde that is about completion and closure um, because it gives us the opportunity to feel that, whether it's to feel closure about a past situation or to feel as if we're able to bring completion and closure to this issue in our relationship and now move forward in the relationship rather than having that continue to be um, interfering with the relationship itself. Um, on a finance level, we may find issues from the past resurface that uh, are uh, that affect us in finances in some way. Um, again, it's not necessarily the best time to uh, finalize a deal to sign on the dotted line because usually what happens is after a Venus retrograde, we start to think, you know, that doesn't quite... So it's like the lights come on at 2 a.m. at the bar and suddenly we're like, you know, this person doesn't really look as attractive as I thought and I don't know that I really want to go home and spend a night with them. Um, so, it, you know, be cautious about what we are committing to during this time. Uh, if somebody was getting married during this time, it's it's okay because the the relationship and the, the commitment to, to get married, you know, all happened prior to the Venus retrograde. Well, unless it was somebody like Britney Spears who does it <laughs> spur of the moment in Las Vegas. Uh, but we saw how but we saw how that turned out and that's actually a very good Venus retrograde example. <laughs> um, no, although so and and just so people know, Venus retrograde, it started July twenty fifth. It'll go through September sixth. So we're not talking about, you know, some ridiculously long period of time that we can't <laughs> finalize a deal or something. Um, but just pay attention to things from the past that resurface during this time, because this is the opportunity to bring closure or completion to them. Or it may be the opportunity to revisit or rekindle something that it may now be the right time for or everyone involved may now be ready for that perhaps previously were not. Um, and so since we were on a uh, uh, slightly more Eastern esoteric theme with our guest earlier, I decided mm -hmm. to pull from the I Ching and the hexagram that came up, which is what you get with the I Ching, it's a series of six lines, um, the hexagram that came up is hexagram number 63, which I was amused because the word that is used for that, the primary word that's used for that here in, the, in what I was using for the I Ching is completion, which I was mm. just talking about with this retrograde. And so this is a, a, a month to focus on finishing something up of completing a task or a project. It also is a time to, if we have completed something, not be in a rush to get right into the next thing or the next step or the next layer. It's it's a it encourages us to take a little bit of time to appreciate and celebrate the accomplishment. To so so I would encourage everyone to make that their action item for the month. Find something in yourself in your life that you have completed or that you are just now finishing up or a goal that you had set that you have been able to reach and celebrate that in some way. Don't worry about, okay, what's my next goal? What's the next task? What's the next project? Take time to actually celebrate it in a very tangible way, even if it means throwing yourself a party. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, that's okay. Um, 
because one aspect of this uh, hexagram actually does have to do with the idea of doing things without expectation of outside validation, recognition, credit, etc. So sometimes it's okay to just give ourselves a pat on the back and then not desperately seek to make sure other people know what it is that we did, um, especially if we were thinking like of doing something for somebody else. If we want to do something for somebody else, this card says and this month says, just do it. Don't do it. Don't announce it. You don't have to make sure everybody knows the good deed that you're doing. In some ways, since you said something controversial, I will say something controversial. Um, in some ways, don't ask for permission to do something good for someone. Just mm. do it. You know, if you feel like you want to cook dinner for someone, don't ask permission. <laughs> Just cook mm. them dinner. <laughs> um, you know, so celebrate the things that you have accomplished or achieved recently during this month. Don't be in a rush to go right into the next thing because you missed that opportunity to catch your breath, to take a moment to be still and just recognize what it is that I've come through, what it is that I've done before moving into the next thing. And if there are things that you want to do, just do them rather than doing them with the expectation of being somehow noticed, known, credited, recognized, validated for doing them. Do them because you get the satisfaction, because you get what it is that you have to get out of doing it, rather than needing it to be something that the eyes of others also necessarily see or acknowledge. That doesn't mean you won't get that, because this is also a really great hexagram for indicating we're likely to be acknowledged or celebrated for something. But the key is that we don't go looking for it. We just allow it to come naturally as a result of us having just done what we did rather than doing it for the sake of that external recognition. Wonderful. Yeah, I I love the image of like giving yourself permission to do nice things for others. And also, I love what you said about completion and being done. And some people love to like start that next project before sticking the landing right you know on that one before and they never really get to revel in in in, in what is what is finished what is complete what is done so i love what you said about that and i think that this goes perfectly with the card that came up for you because for me that ace ace of water is that what they called it in that deck um that one is about going with the flow but, you know, there is that relaxation aspect. There is that kind of indulgence aspect, letting it flow mm-hmm. over, as you were saying. Um, and also, it's the ultimate card of the heart. And so it's doing things because we want to do them from the from the heart, from love, because we just want to do it for this person rather than any other need or expectation. Mm-hmm. So there you are. There's there your clear life for the month. <laughs> do it just do it so we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we will see if there is anyone in the queue who would like to receive a reading if you're not there yet you can uh, join us by Skyping in or connecting from the show page or you can call 646-716-5510 and that will allow you to get into the queue to get a reading from Charlie and I right here live on the air during 
the show. So, we will be right back. to the Amethyst Historical Divination with a Queer Twist with hosts Hi C and Charlie Harrington on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. And welcome back. I'm Hi C and that's Charlie. Hi <laughs> C. Well, I think that people are out enjoying these lovely summer August evenings. We, alas, do not have anyone in the queue for our show this evening, but that's okay. Thank you. I know, but we dab it away and we move on. We 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 had no expectation. Mm-hmm. So, any final words that you might have? Uh, I ask that only people only remember me as. I do, oh, you meant you meant for the show. <laughs> well, well, no, I, no, I it was, it, it was good. I would. I, I was I was happy you were doing that. I thought, oh great! So when I need that, I can just go back and listen to the archive, which you can find on Blog Talk Radio or on iTunes. Uh, um, <laughs> so expect a report from us next month uh, from the Bay Area Tarot Symposium, and uh, we'll, we'll we'll tell you what we got up to uh, within and we would hope- the uh, limits of decency. Well, I, um, and maybe even a little indecency, um, you know. This we have no restrictions. We're not bound by the FCC rules or something. I'm going to say the FCC is not going to find out. That's right. Um, and if you're listening and you you do, I would encourage you to attend bats if you're already planning to go. But if you are at bats and you happen to see Charlie or I or wonder who we are because you've never seen us, just ask around. We're infamous. Everyone will know who we are. They'll point us out. Um, do come up and say hello. We would love a chance to say. Hello. <laughs> Is it me? Hello, Charlie. Hello. Hello. Hi. <laughs> anyway. 
<laughs> so I will look forward to seeing you, Charlie, at BATS, and hopefully maybe even a few people listening. And we would like to thank everyone for once again listening. We are here every month on the second Tuesdays of each month, 8 p.m. Pacific. So hopefully you will join us again next month in September, which our show will air on September 8th. So mark your calendar now. And we thank you for being here and wish you the most amazing, blessed, and queerest month ever. The Amethyst Oracle. Divination with a queer twist. Divination with a queer twist. The Amethyst Oracle. Thank you for joining us. This program was brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. We hope you enjoyed the show. This is Deb Caracella. Please join us next time on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E for Convergence with John Caracella. Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m.